This is part six of David's eight-part series on Jewish philosophy. As with previous episodes, David refers to graphics in this lecture. To see these illustrations, you can watch the Zoom recording of this episode, which you will find via the episode webpage or David's YouTube channel. Visit davidsolomon.online for more. Good afternoon and uh, welcome back to um, <laughs> installment number six of uh, our lunchtime series on Thursdays on a journey through Jewish philosophy. And uh, today's talk, uh, not a simple talk, uh, as some of you may have guessed, we are progressing uh, through the uh, journey of Jewish philosophy at a pace. And I'll remind us that last week we looked at uh, two important thinkers sitting uh, really at the end of the Middle Ages, the end of the medieval period, who are developing new ideas about ways of looking at uh, Jewish thought and philosophy, but still really belong in a medieval mindset. What's, what we're going to look at today is uh, really the, the thinkers that are the hallmark of a completely new paradigm of thought in the world. And I know that uh, with this uh, learned audience, I don't need to... Um, I don't need to explain basic concepts, but it's worth just reminding ourselves that uh, the Enlightenment was not uh, simply just another idea. It was a groundbreaking shift in, in human thought that basically produces the world uh, we live in today. There are now uh, the uh, two thinkers I'm going to look at today. I'm going um, to be looking uh, at Spinoza and I'm going to look at uh, Moses Mendelssohn. And what I want to do is I just want to uh, ground those historically uh, and to see everything that is going on around them in terms of what we call the Enlightenment. Uh, there are many, many different views on exactly what constitutes the Enlightenment and, and, and what its span is and what it is. So I'm going to spend just a minute or two uh, explaining that while I, while I wake up and have another sip of coffee climb into consciousness, so I'm going to have my own personal enlightenment here. Basically, the enlightenment is a, a groundbreaking shift that, if we were to summarize it in any way, we could say that uh, the grounding of knowledge in uh, philosophy, in politics, in a great many different fields of human thought, um, One way in which we can put it is that revealed truth is replaced by, in a sense, a truth that grows up from uh, human observation. The word, the word of God, basically, is replaced by mathematics. This is a, this is a, a shift that, in fact, is so huge, it's almost difficult to describe. Probably the figure that is most associated with the beginning of the Enlightenment, and there are many views on this, would be someone like Descartes. Descartes attempts in the first half of the 17th century to deconstruct everything we know and to build it absolutely from scratch only on what I can absolutely know. And that's where he starts with his famous cogito, his famous, I think, therefore I am. And the whole of knowledge is going to be built up from that. By the end of the 17th century, by the end of the 17th century, we have already lived, uh, at Newton, 
and New the publication of Newton's Principia Mathematica was a crowning achievement of the Enlightenment. It explained uh, the basic, uh, what was going to become the basics of the laws of physics. It was able to describe the motion of the planets. Uh, Newton was able to, he didn't discover gravity, but he was able to basically describe its principles. We had huge developments in political thought, Locke and so on. Leibniz and Newton are both involved in the invention of calculus. This is a this is this is setting the groundwork of modern mathematics, modern science, and the modern world. But as you can imagine, people did not stop thinking about God, and people did not stop thinking about metaphysical truths, and people did not stop thinking about Jews and what we're going to do with Jews and Judaism as we move into the modern world. So that's a kind of a, a, a very, very rough background to the period we're talking about. The 17th century, which we've spoken about elsewhere in great detail, is a time of turmoil. But we are going to zoom in. <laughs> Look, towards the end of the 18th century, the famous, uh, the famous German playwright and, uh, novel, uh, and, and man of letters, um, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, who we're going to talk about in a few minutes, uh, on his uh, deathbed, apparently, um, admitted that if he believed in anything, uh, he was a Spinozist. What is a Spinozist? And that's a very, very telling statement, because throughout the 17th and 18th century, Spinoza's name became identified with a type of atheism. We have to remember that in the 17th century and the 18th century, people found the idea of letting go of the medieval notions of God, of a personified God, as very, very threatening and very, very dangerous. And yet the modern world was pushing that idea upon us, pushing us to determine what we could know about God uh, in any real sense. Spinoza, as I don't need to tell you, uh, sits on the borderline of being a Jewish philosopher. Uh, some people want to say he's not really a Jewish philosopher at all. He is a world-level thinker, uh, but he definitely emerges from a Jewish milieu, and the things he has to say have a huge impact on everyone, uh, including Jewish philosophy. So we're going to talk about him in that context. They're obviously living in Amsterdam, and those of us who are familiar with the 17th century will know that Amsterdam is really the place you want to be in the 17th century. Uh, Holland was effectively a world superpower, in certainly in commercial uh, terms. Amsterdam, very, very strong, but very, very self-protected Jewish community. And this young man is sitting up the back of the Portuguese synagogue, reading Maimonides, reading Crescas, but then starts to have... Uh, ideas about reality that are too powerful, too strong for his community to contain. Uh, and what really, really inflamed uh, Spinoza was his reading of Descartes. And that was going to be something that he was going to spend the rest of his not terribly long life uh, negotiating with uh, in order to present probably the Enlightenment's purest conception of God. Uh, as you know, the uh, Jewish community of Amsterdam 
put Spinoza in harem, they put him in excommunication. There are different views as to why that was the case, but there's no question that uh, it had to do, uh, to some extent, with his incredibly radical views. The first thing we know of Spinoza's writings, really, is his famous Tractatus Theologico-Politicus. Spinoza didn't just write metaphysics, but he wrote also about politics and about what the uh, ideal society should look like. But in the course of doing that, he was attempting to free the state, the new emergent ideal state that was emerging from political discussions in the 17th century, to free that from the influence of religion. And in order to do that, he launched himself into revealed religion and attempted to work out exactly what is going on there. A very, very enlightenment project. But the, why it was so threatening for people is that Spinoza was an extremely honest thinker and held himself at a very high ethical level. So we're not going to, I'm not going to go too much into that right now. That's a separate kind of topic, except uh, that we need to understand that Spinoza sits as kind of like the granddaddy of biblical criticism. For Spinoza, the Torah was not written by God. The Torah was not even written by Moses. It was written by a whole lot of people that came after. This is a thought that is radical in, 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 in the paradigms of Jewish thought. It doesn't surprise us too much today. But in the 17th century, these ideas were incredibly shocking and they needed to be absorbed. The Jewish community of Amsterdam could not absorb them and Spinoza was evicted. And he went and he lived, uh, he didn't become a Christian, he didn't become anything else, he just went and lived in another part of Holland. And uh, really we could almost uh, say that Spinoza is the first secular Jew. In, in some ways he's kind of like the first secular person, but certainly in terms of the Jewish continuum, he is a paradigm of someone who uh, didn't have a religion, didn't have a religion that we would recognize except that his own contemplative thought. The book that really, really gives us an insight into Spinoza's ideas is, of course, the book that was published just after he died, which is his Enlightenment masterpiece called The Ethics. And so I'm just going to talk about that for a few minutes because that's really where I want to drive at uh, because I want us to be able to understand this shift. Some people will be upset that I'm spending this amount of time on Spinoza, but uh, he's a very, very contentious figure because his thought is so profoundly different from anything that had come before and because it's so effectively difficult to refute that a lot of people find Spinoza very threatening. But what is Spinoza telling us? having come in this completely new era after we'd gone right through the Middle Ages discussions of trying to establish through our own speculative deductions what is philosophical truth, what is God, what is the relationship between God and the world, what is humanity, uh, how does uh, God know things, how do we know things, uh, all of those, do we have free choice and so on, all of those discussions that were troubling the thinkers of the Middle Ages who were trying to establish, uh, particularly the ones we've looked at, 
attempting to establish a place for revealed religion, such as Judaism, uh, in the light of philosophical truth. Uh, and once those philosophical truths started breaking down in the 17th century, once people realized that Aristotle was no longer really representative of the world as they knew it, then it was only a matter of time before we started to investigate what it is we actually know about God. So let's, let's dive in and have a look at really the essence of what Spinoza is saying, because there are many, many different views about um, what are the main features of Spinoza's thought. Some of it's very famous, uh, but we really need to look at this uh, just to isolate the key points that are going to uh, affect Jewish thought as well. And the first thing that we know about Spinoza famously, uh, if you were to ask any taxi driver, what does Spinoza say? So he'll tell you that uh, in the ethics, uh, what Spinoza is first and foremost concerned about, certainly in the first part, is the notion of God. It's not the case that Spinoza is denying the existence of God. So to equate it with atheism is a little bit of a subtle uh, perspective. What Spinoza is telling you is that reality, all of reality, is God. There's only one substance that can possibly exist. If we're going to say that God is infinite, and if we're going to say that God is the, is the only self-caused substance that can exist, then the only thing that can exist is God. There's no distinction within that reality between a God that sits above it and a humanity that sits below and, a, and an earth that is created by a God that sits outside of the everything. All that exists is God. God is all that exists. Why this is regarded as an atheistic concept is, of course, because there is no, <laughs> no vertical relationship uh, whatsoever, no idea of a, uh, of, of a personal God, no idea of a God that is uh, concerned with a moral program, with humanity specifically, or even with specific elements within humanity. Everything is God. And, of course, <laughs> nature is a manifestation of God. Uh, and that's what leads some people to think that Spinoza, at the end of the day, is, uh, is a pantheist because he identifies nature with God. Uh, it, it, it's hard to um, describe just how profound the impact of these ideas was. The universe is completely necessary and determined. There are no miracles. There is no free will. Uh, in fact, not only are you not free, uh, because the entire universe is determined, because not only are you not free, but God is not free. 
God is simply a necessary existence, a predetermined necessary existence, and you as part of that reality that is God have no more freedom than a rock being thrown in a particular direction will feel that it wants to go in that direction. But everything is fully determined. However, Spinoza tells you at the end of, uh, and, and at the end of the, well, during the ethics, and the ethics is a book that is constructed with axioms and propositions because what Spinoza wants to do is take the geometry of Euclid uh, in the way that Descartes had done and build up a picture of reality and metaphysics and truth and knowledge purely on a uh, logical and mathematically based system uh, that we discover that the contemplation of reason ultimately leads to freedom. The true or the truest or the most fulfilling mode of a human being's existence is to contemplate reason and to understand the causes behind things and why they happen and in fact uh, what's going to become uh, what we're going to call uh, scientific observation and and understanding reality uh, and to live a life that is devoted to that is really the highest ideal that Spinoza can espouse and what's fascinating about that is that if you read a document, say, by, written by the Rambam, written by Maimonides, if you look at, for example, I was uh, studying with someone last night, chapter five of uh, the Rambam's Shmone Prakim, the eight-chapter introduction to Pirkei Avot, written by Maimonides. And Maimonides' description of what a person should be doing, uh, spending their time doing, is extremely, uh, almost word for word, something that Spinoza could have signed off on. We, obviously, there's a massive difference between how the Rambam views God and the world and the Jewish people to the way that Spinoza does. But the end result is the contemplation of reason, the contemplation of God, which provides a person with the greatest level of inner harmony and peace and really freedom, uh, as Spinoza understood it, free from the passions that uh, can shift a person and blow them about from uh, place to place. But if we contemplate the grounding of all being and realize that we are part of an inevitable unfolding reality that we can call God, which is the only substance going on, then that allows us, I mean, it's, it's very similar to other Eastern forms of thought as well, but that allows a person to sit in a sense in, uh, in, in, in passionless bliss and contemplation. This is Spinoza's idea of, uh, of how we can arrive at this. Now, is Spinoza a kofer ba'ikar? <laughs> is Spinoza a complete heretic according to the paradigms that we laid down last week that we looked at with Albo? And we would have to... Uh, Unfortunately for Baruch Spinoza, uh, we would have to say yes. The, the Spinoza makes an enormous contribution on a world level, uh, 
because he is attempting to free Western thought from the encumbrances of dominating religion, which had influenced politics and influenced philosophy in every single way, but within the continuum of Jewish thought, it's one thing to have a conception of God that is total, and we have seen that and will see that later in other systems, but the denial of miracles, the denial of supernatural intervention into history, which Judaism is kind of predicated upon, for Spinoza, there's no such thing as the supernatural. All that exists is the natural, and all that exists is God. God is reality. So there's no such thing as God intervening to provide some kind of plan. There's no such thing as God intervening to effect miracles for Spinoza. Uh, and also, there's no such thing really as free choice. We've talked about that. But there's also no such thing as reward and punishment. There's no afterlife. There's no plan that we're following. There's just God. And you're a part of it. And as soon as you realize that and remove your passions of day-to-day -day life uh, in order to contemplate that reality, which is pure reason unfolding itself, then the happier you will be. God is the only possible substance. And in doing that, he kind of resolves a dualism that uh, Descartes had left us with about mind, body, how does the mind and the body work in sync? Spinoza says that there's only two things <laughs> that really we're accessing. One is thought and one is extension. They're the only two things. And those things are modes of an infinite God that has an infinite number of attributes. And we're just accessing thought and extension. And that's all. We're just a part of the mind of God, basically, uh, unfolding itself. So, uh, as you can imagine, that didn't go so well. That didn't go down so well in Jewish thought. And uh, Spinoza was excommunicated and his name became a byword for atheism, not just within the Jewish community, but in European society at large. But I'm going to jump now uh, about a century uh, to look at uh, Mendelssohn because... Uh, Mendelssohn's another thinker that is uh, clouded in a lot of uh, misapprehension within the Jewish world. Um, by the time we get to the second half of the 18th century in Germany, uh, the Enlightenment has taken hold in a great many places and is developing into what, we, what they themselves call and what we call the age of reason. So the idea of reason, the idea of rationality, uh, grounded up from human observation, not from some kind of speculative philosophical truth as we saw in the Middle Ages, but from what we really see, the elements of what's going to become uh, science of, of, of the modern era, uh, is almost now at the level of a religion for a lot of people. The age of reason uh, takes the concept of reason and really places it as the ultimate uh, summation of, of, of human thinking. The challenge, however, is that what are we going to do with um, what are we going to do with Jewish thought uh, 
in the face of uh, these incredible challenges. Uh, because, the, because the Enlightenment is so profound a shift that it's going to take some very, very serious uh, efforts to set up um, a thought paradigm going into and, and as part of the Enlightenment for, for the Jewish world. And that had not yet happened. So the main reaction of the Jewish world to the Enlightenment was simply to block it out and to shatter it. Jews were not trying to absorb that into the Jewish world, and nor really were Jews being pressured to do that, either internally or externally, because in the 17th and 18th century, Jewish communities are still, in a sense, on the outer of the intellectual buzz and life of Europe. That's going to change during the course of the 18th and 19th centuries with emancipation, but emancipation has not happened yet. Uh, and also because uh, philosophy is being dominated in the 18th century mostly by English and French thinkers, and Germany is only just starting to come into itself in that, uh, in that respect. The 19th century is really going to be a masterpiece for German philosophy, but we're still only climbing into that in the 18th. So Moses Mendelssohn, uh, Moshe of Dessau, he was born in the 1720s, and he goes... He, at the age of 14, he follows his teacher from Dessau to Berlin, and he learns German, and he studies philosophy, and as a young man in a chess salon, he meets Lessing, and people are astonished because he is a Jew from the shtetl, effectively, sitting in a cafe, playing chess, able to speak German, having discussed philosophy. This is an amazing thing for people to see, a Jew who can do that. Uh, Jews were considered exotic beings that didn't really get involved in philosophy and letters and so on. But Mendelssohn was a very, very different uh, kind of figure. And in fact, Mendelssohn's big name came about when he won an open essay competition in Germany uh, on, on metaphysics, and that uh, secured his fame. And the runner-up in that essay competition was none other than Immanuel Kant. So uh, for during the 1760s and 1770s, before uh, Kant's real rise in influence, Mendelssohn was regarded as the primary philosopher in Germany. He was called the German Socrates. It's not just a case that, oh, he was a Jewish guy and he did well. He was the biggest philosopher in Germany for much of the second half of the 18th century. And people are coming to Mendelssohn. Here's Mendelssohn's challenge, because people are coming to him and saying, oh, you're Mendelssohn, we're very impressed. But how is it that despite being a great exemplar of the age of reason in your thoughts, you are still adhering to this book of the ancient world called the Torah, because Mendelssohn was kept the mitzvot, kept halacha, kept Jewish law and Jewish ritual all of his life. He never gave it up. So this was very troubling to people. How do we reconcile this? I'm not talking about other Jewish people because other Jewish people weren't even coming near the Enlightenment. But I'm talking about Mendelssohn's contemporaries. So on the one hand, his fellow thinkers from the age of reason were wanting to know why he was still involved in the Jewish religion and why he was still 
adhering to the tenets of the Torah when he was talking about universal truths, both politically and philosophically. And he was also under tremendous pressure from uh, Christian thinkers because Christianity itself in the 18th century as the dominant religion of Europe, but nevertheless a revealed religion, was itself attempting to reconcile with the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was extremely challenging for Christianity. And once again, the church, the Roman Catholic Church, didn't want to really know about it. But much of uh, Germany and Holland and England, these places were Protestant. They were happy to try and come to terms with the Enlightenment. But it wasn't a simple business. Um, and Christianity was, in a sense, seen by a lot of people as a step on the way to enlightenment. So even if you wanted to uh, try and reconcile the enlightenment with Christianity, <laughs> Judaism was going to be left far behind. So Mr. Mendelssohn was astonishing to them that he wasn't at least prepared to become a Christian and recognize the truths of Christianity, which was so much more universal and in line with the age of reason. As a result of all those pressures, as a result of all those kinds of um, uh, challenges, Mendelssohn ended up writing a book, a very, which really, I mean, he wrote a number of books, but this particular book is just one of the greatest statements of Jewish philosophy. And in fact, it, it, it uh, is the Jewish philosophical text of the 18th century and in a way sets the whole tone of Jewish thought uh, going into the modern era as to how uh, the Jewish people are going to account for themselves in the course of modernity and in the post-Enlightenment age. I don't know, I don't know if um, it, this is obvious to you, but I'm going to say it anyway, that it, 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 it's not going to be the case that the Jewish people are going to say, ah, oh, and enlightenment. Well, that's good. I think now that we'll uh, turn off the lights, we'll pack Judaism up in a cupboard and we'll just, you know, we'll just uh, go and all become uh, enlightened uh, universalists. Uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, the Jews are going to be around till the end of history, I'm here to tell you, uh, as was uh, promised to their ancestors. But they live in a world that is real and a world that they have to absorb and that needs to absorb them. And uh, Judaism is very, very capable of accommodating different ways of looking at the world and, uh, and changing in accordance with that. But nevertheless, it has to account. So how, how are we going to count with the Enlightenment? And uh, Mendelssohn writes Jerusalem. He writes the book Jerusalem. And a lot of people have read Jerusalem, but they haven't paid attention to its subtitle because the subtitle of Jerusalem is On Religious Power and Judaism. Jerusalem is a political manifesto as much as it is a uh, philosophical one. And when I say a political manifesto, we immediately go, ah, oh, because we're sitting in the 20th and 21st century. So we're going, ah, oh, Jews, political manifesto. Does that mean he's talking about Israel? Does that mean he's talking about a Jewish state? No, 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 no. 
we're not anywhere near a Jewish state just yet with Mendelssohn. In fact, the idea of a Jewish state to Mendelssohn would have just seemed completely uh, out of left field. Uh, the Jews were still not even emancipated within the countries that tolerated them, let alone uh, being able to some, think about some kind of national political entity. And nation states are really a product of the 19th century following Napoleon and so on. But Mendelssohn's living in an age where we're talking about enlightened despots, that is, kings who have absolute power, but who've nevertheless read a couple of books in the Enlightenment, so they feel that they can uh, be enlightened despots and so on. Uh, but political systems are not really, uh, well, political systems are under threat in the 18th century, which is going to end with a bunch of revolutions. Uh, but not, we're not yet at the level of nation-state. When Mendelssohn is talking about, uh, when Mendelssohn provides a political platform for Jews, he's talking about justifying the existence of Judaism within the modern world and within the modern nation-state as it's emerging in the 18th century, and particularly the intellectual uh, challenges that are coming to Jews, such as those coming to Mendelssohn, and when they're asking him why he adheres to the Torah. And one of Mendelssohn's big ideas that is uh, very, very important for us to understand going forward is this. The Torah, says Mendelssohn, uh, and, 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 and here, just before I tell you, make this point, I was suddenly realizing that, um, because I, 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 I wanted to... Um, contextualize this properly. A lot, a lot of people are troubled by Mendelssohn. I've got to tell you that in the religious world today, a lot of people, I've, I've got in trouble in the religious world from speaking about Mendelssohn because Mendelssohn is misunderstood by a lot of religious people and they think that he is the father of reform and the granddaddy of the Haskalah. It's true. He's the father of the Haskalah, of what is, we call the Jewish Enlightenment, which is a terrible term, but uh, the, the Haskalah, he's not the father of the reform movement and he's not the father of uh, modern Jewish uh, political systems, but he is the father of the Haskalah because he does have a view that Jews need to broaden their understanding of the world in, in line with the Enlightenment and become a part of the society in which they live, intellectually as well as politically. But Mendelssohn tells you in Jerusalem and elsewhere that for him, the Torah is not coming to tell him metaphysical truths. The Torah is not a book of philosophy. The Torah is revealed law. Every nation has its laws. The Enlightenment still believed in nature and it believed that different nations had different types of characteristics and therefore had different types of legal systems. And this is the legal system pertaining to the Jewish people. The Jewish people are a distinct entity in the world, whether you like it or not. We don't have a country and a state at the moment. And that's what Jerusalem is based on and what that state uh, might look like or entail. Uh, but differences exist in nature, and these are the laws of the Jewish people. The book, the Torah is a book that tells me how to live. However, says Mendelssohn, 
no one can tell me how to think. This is a very, very important point that is reflecting Spinoza as well. No one can interfere in my private uh, belief systems. Now, ultimately, ultimately, the true religion of humanity, Mendelssohn would tell you, is reason. There's no question about it. Rationality and reason, and we're in the age of reason, that's the true religion of humanity as a whole. But individual nations have their own particular frameworks of law and behavior. The test of those individual revealed religions, which a person is, should be completely free to pursue privately, so leave me alone, says Mendelssohn, to be a Jew. But the test of any individual or particular spiritual system is, of course, its effect on conduct. You will know it by the conduct of the person who follows it and believes it. That, of course, was the idea behind Lessing's famous play, Nathan the Wise, that was kind of based on Mendelssohn, that the truth is revealed by those who have it in their conduct and in their behavior. But everybody should be entitled to their own uh, religious beliefs. I happen to believe that there are better ways of believing than Christianity, says Mendelssohn. But if you want to privately believe that and uh, don't disturb the civic harmony in your beliefs, then you should be allowed to believe it. And similarly with Judaism, and similarly with any individual belief system, we are all members of a wider civic society, but our beliefs are private. This might seem like a very, very, very obvious thing for us to realize today, but in the 18th century, this was regarded by many people as radical. The idea that we had some kind of civic secular persona, but privately, we had belief systems that were particular and based on revealed truth. As it happened, says Mendelssohn, the Jewish people exist to remind humanity of this freedom of belief. That's a very, it's a massive point that I don't think a lot of people have absorbed that really the, the, the whole function of the Jewish people in the world is to, in a sense, be allowed the freedom of their beliefs and to follow the Torah, even in a world of universal reason and rationalism, precisely to preserve the concept of the freedom of belief. So in a sense, if Spinoza, in the Tractatus and in his other writings, was attempting to free uh, the state from the control of religion, Mendelssohn, in a sense, was trying to free religion from control of the state. And this is a very, very, very important time to be doing this because we're going to see over the next century or so the rise of nation states. And Mendelssohn is concerned that religious belief is able 
to maintain its own integrity and to maintain its own corner uh, with that, and that individuals have the right to the freedom of belief. Uh, so long as, so long as they are contributing in a harmonious way to the civic society around them and not disrupting it. And that really also is a doorway into Mendelssohn's whole idea about how Jewish people should be learning science, they should be learning German, they should be reading literature, philosophy, and so on. That's why he translated the Torah into German, was in order to give an entire new generation uh, access, not so much to the Torah, but to German and to German literature and so on. That's the kind of the idea behind his famous Biur. Uh, so Mendelssohn is kind of like the granddaddy of the Haskalah of the uh, Jewish world's attempt to come to terms with the Enlightenment on a concrete level, but he also sets its philosophical tone. And in many, many ways, those ideas have been absorbed into our understanding of how we are as a Jewish people in the modern world. In other words, we go about, we're part of a society, and we respect the universal aims of that society, but we fully expect uh, that we are going to be respected uh, within the uh, corner of our own religious beliefs within that society, and that we will be allowed those beliefs without interference. These are very, very important points within the construction of uh, a political framework that can allow particularities to exist in, in the age of reason. So, uh, and, the, and, and there's more than, a, a, more than a small amount, in my opinion, but really we would need to come back and talk about this, more than a small amount of self-criticism in Mendelssohn as well, where some of his criticisms against the community, against the uh, society at large, actually kind of name, uh, aimed perhaps more at the Jewish community. It is true, as the Kuzari had already pointed out in the 12th century, that Jews uh, struggle with power when we have it. Uh, and we, uh, that, that's a whole other subject. But Mendelssohn was, more, was very, very keenly aware of that. He believed, of course, in uh, universality of humankind, but no, no Jew will ever get escape velocity from the fact that they are part of a unique nation that has a continuum in history and that God is involved in that continuum. All right. Spinoza is a world philosopher who happens to come from a Jewish environment. Uh, Mendelssohn is a Jewish philosopher who is looking at the world at the big universal picture, but his primary concern is going to be with how that picture can be absorbed uh, by the community from which he's come. So uh, moving forward, we will see that in the light of that, the 19th and 20th century figures we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks will all be working off that background, so it was important to cover it. And uh, I thank you for uh, I thank you for following. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.